This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Well, good morning. Go ahead and bring the rest of the lights up, please. All right. Because I want to see all of your smiling faces this morning, or maybe a few grumpy ones. But anyhow, I'm, good to see, I'm glad to see you too. I really am. I really am. So, um, well, Palm Sunday, as you may have guessed, I mean, we've been talking about it, and it's like on the screen and everything else. What a wonderful day of celebration. Looking forward to visiting with you about that this morning in detail. But uh, before I do, I want to uh, draw everybody's attention over here, our cross wall. For those of you who've been here a while, you're very familiar with our cross wall. Others, you may have walked in and said, that's interesting. They have this really pretty wall, and it's not just a really cool, you know, good-looking wall with lots of uh, interesting-looking crosses, uh, but it's also very symbolic to us as a body. You know, these uh, crosses, you'll notice the largest one in the middle is symbolic of us as a, as a church, and then each one of those smaller crosses is symbolic of the families of our church. They're each very unique. If you go up and look at those crosses, you'll see lots of symbolism in those crosses beyond just the cross itself that speaks of the individuals, the families that make up this church. And so as we're all seeking to, to live that cruciform life together, uh, there's a sense of our uh, individuality that is expressed in that, and then a sense of our collectiveness uh, as the body of Christ here. And so as people say, this is my church home, they bring a cross and put, uh, for us to put on the wall. And so I, I'm really excited. You know, uh, one of the things uh, as these crosses are brought in, uh, some people have been here just a little while and they bring us a cross and I'm very excited they you know, are committed right away and, and want to express that. Um, but one of the things that happens sometimes is that people have been with us for a little while and then they start to think like, well, I don't have the right cross or, you know, wow, it seems a little awkward. I've been here for a while. Well, you know, bringing a cross now seems silly. And I keep saying, no, it's not. Like, it's really cool, even when you've been here a while, to bring a cross. I really like that. Uh, it means a lot to me. Uh, I can't tell you um, uh, how much this is meant to me. This is the cross of somebody who's been here a while. And uh, when they brought me their cross this past week and said, you know, uh, hey, we finally found the right cross, like, that just meant the world to me. I just, I, I can't even put into words. So, uh, uh, it's very beautiful too, it was made by a friend of theirs that I understand has been here with them, uh, but the Lyles. So would you guys stand up for just a moment? And... So make sure and tell them how much you appreciate that they brought their cross. I just, thank you guys. You just don't know how much that means to me. All right, well, we've got the blood drive and you didn't even have to play hockey, uh, you know, uh, and uh, then this week, we are like here from, you know, Palm Sunday, we are rushing toward Easter on next Sunday. Very hard to believe that we're already there, uh, you know, and to be this far into the year, all the things uh, that have unfolded uh, already. Uh, but I want to uh, remind everybody, you know, Good Friday, uh, this Friday, we're also having a night of intercession. And what a a great way to, you know, um, I think head into the weekend uh, that, you know, Good Friday, uh, the, the, the essence of it is 
is intercession. Jesus laid down his life for us, right? He stood in the gap for us uh, to, as it were, to take the hit. And that's what intercession literally means. It means to stand in the gap. It means to take the hit for another. It is a very priestly kind of word. We use it specifically in terms of prayer now. Uh, that's the only way we use it anymore. But really, it, the, the actual meaning of the word means to stand between God and another and to bring the two together, uh, standing in the gap. And so I can't think of a more symbolic thing to do on Good Friday than to enter into prayer for others. Amen? So want to invite you to be a part of that. It's going to be a great time together. All right. Well, Palm Sunday... We call it Palm Sunday because, of course, they laid palms down, right? They cut palm branches. Uh, in addition to their cloaks, they laid the palms down. I don't know why we don't call it Cloak Sunday. That'd be appropriate. Uh, we could also call it Triumphal Entry Sunday. Um, but, you know, I'm just thinking to myself, last week I said, you know, we're wrapping up Scandalous and heading into uh, our Scandalous series and heading into Palm Sunday. And it occurred to me, I guess we could have called this Scandalous Sunday also, you know, because it begins, right, with the triumphal entry and ends in the cross. And so there's a sense of a little bit of scandal, is it not? Like, uh, what does that mean? I mean, we have triumph and then we have the cross and, and we wrestle through those things things of what, how the cross has come to mean to us, triumph of what, how the cross has come to uh, mean to us, victory over the powers of darkness, victory over uh, sin and death. And so that is just not the way the world thinks of the cross. When you look at the way the cross, uh, you know, the imagery of the cross, the, all the pain and it's associated with that, it's very hard sometimes for those in the world to get their head around I remember as a child, very clearly, sitting in catechism, you know, CCD class uh, at uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral, downtown El Paso, Texas, and I can remember that as we were talking about those things, and I just like kept working out in my head and in my heart, sitting there, like how awful those people were, that they crucified Jesus. And I was trying to think of every way that why didn't he just do this? And why didn't he just do that? And in my mind, what it was is that he should have like, you know, come off the cross. And why didn't God do that? And of course, I could not begin to understand all that was in that as a child. And yet I also realized that many times that we wrestle with that too, even as adults, that even though we know that there's this sense in which we wish it didn't have to happen, we wonder why, no matter how many explanations we have. This week, we are looking at that final week of Jesus' earthly ministry and the events of Palm Sunday, and I want to point out just how highly symbolic these events really were, drawing from the words of the prophets and even, even from the writings of the intertestamental period, uh, we're gonna, I, I'm going to reference some things from the book of uh, First Maccabees, uh, which was a, a wonderful uh, historical record. Uh, I went back and read through that account again this week, reminding myself of the events that, that uh, were involved in that and how these things are referenced right here uh, in these events. And so uh, I, I hope you will uh, engage with me here. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. If you're using a phone or tablet, please set that to silent for the sake of those around you. I'm going to read it from the English Standard Version, but please follow along in whatever translation you have. The one in your lap is my favorite, as always. 
because you're reading it. Let's take a look. Matthew Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and those that were followed were shouting, Hosanna to Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David! They were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask, you will receive if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as they were teaching, and he said, they said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will ask you one question, and if you will tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? Mm, but if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, 
and then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. Isn't Jesus cheeky? I love Jesus. So the text opens with Jesus sending his disciples to find the donkey, specifically to fulfill the words of Zechariah the prophet. Now, if you and I take a look at the, the, the context there in Zechariah that's being quoted, uh, it tells of a day when specifically Yahweh, when Yahweh would come as king of Jerusalem, he would enter Jerusalem, Yahweh was coming, and, and it speaks of an, a kingdom that would span the entire earth. In other words, it would be, it would be headquartered there that, that God would take his throne. See, that's the symbolism of the temple is that it's the very throne room of God. The Holy of Holies is supposed to be the throne room of God that he's seated there between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. And so that's his throne. And it was always understood then uh, by the people, whether we're talking about tabernacle or temple, that that was the throne room of God. And then the, the imagery of the tabernacle and of the temple was that specifically of all of creation. There was uh, water that it was you know, made out of you know, uh, metal and, and overlaid with gold. But it was, the idea was is that as you looked around uh, the holy place is that it was symbolic of all of creation. And so the picture that you saw as you walked into the room was there was the throne room of God and you know just think to yourself some of the imagery and like in the Psalms and all that that you know the uh, the earth being his footstool the, the heavens being his throne and so it's meant to like conjure those images to you that you come into this place and all of creation is around the throne room because it is a physical copy of the real thing that's the idea. In fact, when, when Moses was being given directives about what to do there, uh, and he was told to follow the blueprint uh, that was given to him, it was specific to the idea that they were making something that was an imitation of the real thing. It was a, a miniature, it was a scaled-down model, if you will, to keep in mind for them, to, to help them remember of what was true, that God was seated on the heavens, the earth is his footstool, and, and everything in all of creation is because he is Yahweh. And so in this picture that Zechariah is painting of, of, of restoration, of a, a, a day in which uh, Yahweh would come back and he would be seated on his throne and that uh, his kingdom would span the entire earth and it would bring peace to the nations. And when we use that word nations, remember that in the Old Testament, uh, nations is a, uh, you know, kind of a... a, a, a um, uh, allegory or uh, a picture of those who are outside of the covenant of Israel. Uh, in the Greek, the word ethnos is employed, uh, meaning race or ethnicity. Uh, and so when it talks about the, the gospel going to the nations, it doesn't mean like borders and things like that. It's, it's not talking to landmass. It's talking about the idea that every race, every people, every tribe, nation, language, tongue, people being included in the gospel. And so 
here this picture is, is that, the, that his coming to his throne and his kingdom filling all of creation and then bringing peace to all people. And so every faithful Jew would recognize the symbolism of that moment. Like there's, there's no doubt that they would make that connection, especially we're talking about Passover week, right? And so as, they, as all of this is going on, people are, are coming into Jerusalem. There's a sense of expectation in that in and of itself. I mean, anytime you think of any major holiday in your life, right, we have anticipation leading up to that. And if it's your biggest holiday, which if you're in the United States of America means Christmas, like, the, like from Thanksgiving on, what songs are on the radio? Ad nausea, right? I mean, like, you eventually start to go, like, can, you know, where's the Spotify? I've got to change. You know, I need to get the, the Christmas music off. I need a, a break from all the Christmas music. And, and there's the anticipation. We see it in the children. Uh, uh, we see it in the, in the stores. Uh, everywhere we go, people's attitudes get a little different, sometimes a little spicier, sometimes a little sweeter, depending on the individual or, or whether they can find what they're looking for or not. But we have this ramp of expectation, do we not? I mean, I, I know. I know some people are thinking right away, why is he referencing Christmas? We're talking about this. And, but you know what I'm talking about. There is anticipation. I wish we had that kind of anticipation coming into Easter. Uh, not nearly, right? It's just not nearly. Uh, uh, you know, the, our number one holiday is uh, Christmas. Uh, it's, you know, followed by Halloween, uh, and, you know, Easter is a very distant, like, fifth or something like that. But you and I know that sense of anticipation as we come into a, a holiday of some kind of significance and all the symbolism around that. We're coming up on Memorial Day before long, and there's anticipation of that. It's the beginning of summer, Right? Oh, yeah, and we remember those who gave their lives for our country. We have anticipation, expectation. And as they were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, there was a tremendous amount of expectation. Enter the fact that we are talking about a time in which the people were longing for Messiah to come to deliver them from the rule and reign of Rome, uh, actually, there, that whole relationship with Rome goes back uh, all the way to the Maccabean period uh, when Rome was on the rise and Israel uh, was trying to resist the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes uh, and the Maccabees uh, fought valiantly to, get, to cast them out. Uh, they, the holiday that they celebrate uh, still to this day in memorial of getting rid of Antiochus Epiphanes uh, was actually what we call Hanukkah. Uh, and so it's usually celebrated, you know, in December, of course, and, and uh, uh, lots of anticipation and buildup around that. Uh, did you know that one of the mistakes that they made in that day was that they made an alliance with a small nation called Rome, just in case Antiochus ever rose to power again? And they gave them gold so 
as an insurance policy against the Greek Empire with no understanding of what they were doing as they became a tribute nation of Rome. Hmm. Intriguing, isn't it? At the moment that they were supposed to be getting free from the rule of an oppressor, they made a deal with the devil to guarantee their safety. Hmm. Does it seem like sometimes that, I don't know, maybe you find it true even in your own life, that we don't seem to learn the lessons and that we keep repeating them, and that God is patient, so that even when we fail the first time, the good news is you don't actually fail. You just keep repeating the same lesson over and over again until you learn it. Amen or oh me. All right. So he's quoting from the text of Zechariah, and I I promise you, this was one of those verses that every good little Hebrew boy learned and knew and could quote. And so every faithful Jew would have recognized all the symbolism as that verse is, is being quoted, just like there was no doubt, especially the connection with Passover. And of course, we know that they understood simply because of this. That there was messianic intent in the crowd as well, because they cry out, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna is a Hebrew word filled with messianic hope. It appears in the Old Testament only in one place. It occurs in Psalm 118. In that particular form, it is translated to us as save us. Save us, O God, deliver us maybe depending on your translation there, as you read through Psalm 118, it appears a couple of times. It's the only place that it occurs in the Old Testament. But it is written here in the imperative form uh, uh, and left transliterated. They don't translate it for us. They just say, Hosanna in the highest. It literally is translated, save now. It's an imperative statement. It's like a command. Save now. But then it's attached to that rest of that title in the highest. So then it becomes a a way of a a pronouncement about who is coming, riding on. It's a statement of that Yahweh has sent his Messiah, the Savior, the save now in the highest, the rescuer in the highest. Clearly, The crowd was ready, ripe, if you will, for Messiah to take his throne, to come in and and to siege what was rightfully his. And of course, in their mind, to purge the city of Jerusalem of Gentiles, to take back what is rightfully Israel's. And as we've said before, and I point out so now again, that was not the route of peace. Peace was not purging them of the Gentiles. Peace was reconciling Jew and Gentile into one new person, putting to death the enmity between the two. Peace was making one new person, a new Israel that included both Jew and Gentile by faith. Children of Abraham, not by blood, but by faith in Yahweh God. 
Despite that fact, their messianic expectations, of course, were askew. They, they still saw messianic symbolism. They saw Zechariah 9.9. They saw Isaiah 63.2 and following being fulfilled right before their eyes. And they jumped on the bandwagon and started cheering Jesus and laying down the palms. Even so, some asked, who is this? They wanted to know, who is it that comes in the name of the Lord? Who comes in the name of Yahweh? Who is this Hosanna? And the words are very telling, right? I mean, Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. They identify him as a prophet. It's been their entire expectation, their entire understanding is that the Messiah is a prophetic figure. And so they reference him in such a way. They have no concept of the idea of God becoming man in dwelling, his dwelling place to be made among them. Even though the text says the Lord is coming, they, they've used this in such a way that Messiah is representing him, not in the idea of the Lord coming himself. And they are so ready for a Messiah. And then the text suddenly seems to make a shift from the entry to the temple itself. Now, it's really not a shift because if you and I go back and we read through that whole section in Zechariah, it's talking about that how Yahweh himself would come riding in that donkey and come to the temple and take his throne back. And yet somehow that's missed. I would guess it's, it's in part because there's this way that they are interpreting the Bible through the lens of their culture, their expectations, uh, that there are ideas and traditions that have risen up around messianic verses, and so that they're, they're not just seeing what's happening, they're not actually just looking at the text, but that really tradition is trumping everything else that's happening. could happen to us too, couldn't it? And so it looks like a sudden shift, but it's all actually in keeping with this imagery. Then begins this whole thing of him coming back as Jerusalem, you know, to Jerusalem as king, going to his throne. And then, then starts another sequence of messianic symbolism. Jesus begins to cleanse the temple. Now, I don't know about you, but you may have remembered when I preached on this before, I've always noted that he is specifically cleansing the court of the Gentiles. That's where this is happening. The court of the Gentiles is the place where the nations, the ethnos, can come and worship God, right? There was this understanding in the designating and the designing of it that there needed to be a place for the nations to be able to come to the house of prayer and to worship God even the nations, right? Just, not just Jews, uh, but there was this idea of there being a specific place where the nations could come because they were supposed to be a light unto the Gentiles. Do you kind of remember that part maybe a little bit? And so he comes in and he's cleansing that court. He's making room for the nations. And, and there's this huge rebuke for shutting out the nations Instead of being a witness to them, they have filled the place so that it is impossible for them to come. They have made it an unwelcome place. They've made it so that no one except themselves, there's a sense of selfishness, deep abiding selfishness, that there's no welcome place for the lost. 
The symbolism doesn't stop there. As Jesus is cleansing the temple, he's shouting almost verbatim the words shouted by Judas Maccabees when he took back the temple from Antiochus Epiphanes in what we call Hanukkah. During that uh, cleansing, as they were coming in and they were bringing the armies of God to come up against the, the armies of Antiochus Epiphanes and they're proclaiming these things and they're shouting uh, these things about my house shall be called a house of prayer and they were purging uh, the, the, that and they went back into the temple and they tore down the altar to Zeus that had been put in the place of the altar of God. They cleansed the altar from pig's blood and from everything that would defile it, the abomination that causes desolation. And they relit the lamp of the presence of God, which is what Hanukkah is all about. They've just only had enough oil at that moment for one day. And while they were pressing the other oil, that that miraculously burned for the eight days while they were preparing the other oil. That's the celebration of Hanukkah, that the light being restored to the temple. And so here Jesus, not just symbolically, but physically cleansing the temple, and he's shouting the words of Judas Maccabees about cleansing the temple of false worship. Do you know what Judas Maccabees did? He killed the false priests and reestablished the worship of Yahweh God. That's what Hanukkah's really all about. So when Jesus made his highly symbolic, prophecy-rich entrance there, it is a statement of Yahweh God coming back to his throne, cleansing the temple, making room, and not just purging it of merchants who were making a mockery, but literally it was a bold frontal attack on the current chief priest. You know why? Because he's the great-great-great-grandchild of Judas Maccabees. See, every good Pharisee and every good Sadducee knows exactly what Judas Maccabees said. It was celebrated. It was something that was taught from early on. And so he is effectively saying that though your grandfather brought peace and though your grandfather was the one who purged the temple, you have become the representative of everything that is corrupt. You have ruined the worship of the temple and you have been, you are now the abomination that everything that Antiochus Epiphanes represented. You have taken captive the temple so that the Spirit of God is no longer here. I promise you the chief priest knew exactly what Jesus was intimating when he quoted those words. I promise you that every Hanukkah he read those words and was proud of his great-great-granddaddy. And so then to be identified as by this peasant preacher as the polluter of the temple, it wasn't just an attack on him, it was an attack on his heritage, his family, all that the Pharisees represented, all that the Sadducees represented, the heroes of Hanukkah. 
And they themselves are being told that though you were once heralded as messianic deliverers, you have become the corruption of Israel. They who saw themselves as the hope of Israel, right? I mean, what the Pharisees uh, and the Sadducees uh, believed uh, in different ways altogether, but they had this confidence in the teachings of the rabbis and, and of the lawyers and the scribes and, and so forth. That they, The concept was, is if we just build a fence around the law, we won't break the law. And as long as we don't break the law, we get to keep the land, we get to keep the promises, and one day God will return to fill this place. They absolutely saw their rigorous legalism as the hope of Israel to get rid of the defilers. And in this moment, they're being told, no, you have become the defilement. No wonder they approached him in the courtyard and demanded that he stop. It's not just that they want him to stop them shouting what they're shouting, but they also want to silence the accusation. I mean, that becomes the the commitment from that point on. That becomes the the line in the sand that Jesus crossed in their minds. There is no way that you're getting out of this place alive. We will kill you for this. How dare you challenge our authority? How dare you accuse us of the very things that our grandfather tried to set us free from? See, up to this point, Jesus has repeatedly said in only quiet, hushed tones to small groups of people that he's the Messiah. I am he. But he has constantly said to them, what? But tell no one. Tell no one. He, he, every time that his crowd, his popularity grows, he moves out into the, because he says it's not time. It's not the right time yet. And now the time has come. The time is fulfilled. And he comes into the city and he's riding and all the imagery and the condemnation of all that is happening there. And, and he's saying, this is the end of this kind of pretend. We're going to have the real presence of God. You will be its temple. And I will be seated on the throne of your heart and there is a day coming in which all of this will be won again but but there was unmistakable the challenge to the systems to the way everything was and he's saying like this is the good news and it will not only be for you but to all who are far off to the nations to the very ends of the earth it's going to bring hope it's going to bring peace it's going to bring good news to the very ends of the earth And it means you're going to lose your position and your power. It's going to tear down all that you've built. Silence him at any cost. To which Jesus replies with Psalm 8. Again, delivering a scathing rebuke. In Psalm 8 it says, And they will sing to Yahweh, the children, those who, when, when you're reading those words and he says that he says he's ordained praise from the child and from the infant, uh, what he's referring to there in Psalm 8 is it's saying that it has been ordained in the heavens that they are going to sing praise to Yahweh. He is identifying himself in no uncertain terms 
with Yahweh. He is saying, I am. And of course, that's something they... You can just imagine, can you, have you ever been around somebody who got so mad that they like started to vibrate? Have you ever been so mad? <laughs> okay. Don't want to admit that one, but. And it says that Yahweh ordained praise from the children because Yahweh's enemies were trying to silence him. That's literally what it's talking about. I mean, if, this, if, if there's any doubt in their minds at this point, he just ended all the doubt. He has just made him very clear. I mean, there's just no way you get around this. He has done all these messianic uh, uh, things. He has come in and he has identified himself as Yahweh. And even in this moment, when you say, hey, you know what? Shut up. You need to stop this. You need to quit accusing of these things. He says, and I have ordained praise from the mouth of this children because you have tried to silence me. Me being Yahweh. That's why... When we get to the trial, and they're saying, he said these things, he said these things. Well, what did he say? Well, he quoted things from Psalm 8. Well, did he say his name was Yah? Well, no. I mean, he intimated it. I mean, right? And so there's this sense of frustration. Uh, their, their determination becomes so evident because he said, but he didn't say, and we just kill him. And that's the end of day one. Day two, Jesus returns with his disciples. You probably think to yourself, wasn't that enough? I mean, like, like right? I mean, we're going to go back in, right? I mean, it's kind of like the Apostle Paul gets stoned uh, out in the countryside, left for dead, and he gets up and he goes back into town and gives the invitation. Uh, this is like, you're like thinking, why would you enter into this conflict again? Because there is something to be done. He is on his way to the cross. It is very intentional. Day two, Jesus returns with the disciples, and on the way, he condemns the fig tree. Now, before you separate those things, which is what we usually do, we just go, okay, I don't know why, it's just, what, just abruptly the next day he comes and I don't know, he curses a fig tree. I don't know, what's that about? The fig tree, if you remember whenever I did the series on Amos, is symbolic of Israel. And so the idea of a fruitful fig tree is the idea of Israel being fruitful. And as he's on his back, way back into town to finish what he has begun, he sees the fig tree, there are no figs, and he curses it and it withers. And when they ask him, he says, I tell you, if you have this faith, you can say to this mount. What mount is he talking about? Zion. See, we, we like to, to extrapolate that and make it all about faith. We were moving it from its larger context. The big picture here is that he has come in and he has made a statement about his messiahship. He has made a statement about who he is, about what's coming, about how everything is about to change. 
And he is making a point about that priesthood. About those people and their behavior, the leaders, the religious leaders at that time, and how they've shut the nations out. And he's extending this thing that's going to go global. And he references Mount Zion and the temple and the city of Jerusalem and says, essentially, these things have not been fruitful. These things are passing for what is coming. Making it less about personal faith and more of an indictment of those who are leading Israel at the time. Of their faithlessness. And it's highlighted again. Jesus goes to the Temple Mount and they ask him, right in that just following immediate context, by what authority are you doing these things? Referring to the events of the day before when he symbolically acted out messianic passage, imitated Judas Maccabees. They want to hear it. And then he answers them with a riddle. By what authority did John do that? The Bible tells us then they discussed it among themselves. They didn't really want to answer Jesus. They wanted to outmaneuver Jesus. There's a big difference. You know, like a teenager in trouble, right? Hmm. Or like a husband who's forgotten to do something. (laughs) Hmm. I'm not going to get in trouble for what I did. I'm going to get in trouble for what you think I did. So (laughs) they're trying to outmaneuver Jesus. But notice as... Readers, we still don't actually know what they thought. It doesn't tell us what they thought. It tells us how they were deliberating to give an answer, to outmaneuver. All we really learn is that they're trying to avoid looking stupid. But that didn't work either. Now, that's where I stopped reading today, but can I just point out to you, without having to go into reading all the rest of the text here because the truth is if I continue day two goes all the way through Matthew 26 verse 5 so we're in Matthew I read you know bulk of Matthew 21 I think you'd probably be frustrated if I was still standing here reading to you just guessing but can I point out that all the woes the riddles the parables the apocalyptic innuendos things in Matthew 24 and all those kind of things, are all tied to Jesus purposefully and unmistakably communicating the message that he is Yahweh in the flesh, that he is coming to reclaim his throne and to reestablish true worship. He is moving the identity from the temple, the physical temple, to the idea of this new temple. He declares himself to be that true new temple and and this whole idea of that the Holy Spirit indwelling you and I. He's overthrowing pretenders to his throne, whether they be priests or kings of the earth or anything else, and refocusing it back where it belongs. But let me just back up just one little bit and point out his words, chapter 25, verse 43 where Jesus says to the rulers, 
Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Then verse verse 45, and when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this, they knew he was talking about them. And that's why they participated in killing Jesus. You see, here's the thing is, is that Jesus fully intended to go to that cross. He knew the time, he knew the place, he knew when it was supposed to happen. The enemy was doing everything it could to stop him in the human realm, but listen, the real enemy, Satan, did everything he could to dissuade him from going to the cross. He spent those 40 days out in the wilderness telling him that there was another way. You don't have to go to the cross. See, the enemy's not stupid. The enemy knew full well that when Jesus went to that cross, it changed everything. We're talking about the aspirations of men at this point. They are incensed. They are offended at everything he has said, and they desperately want to put an end to this guy so that he can no longer challenge their position, their authority, their opportunities. And Jesus was overthrowing everything that stood between him and the people. He was making sure that they would not be able to separate from him from his people any longer. Not curtains, not using the law, not using sin, not using tradition, that nothing in all of creation was going to separate him from his beloved. Church, that is what Palm Sunday is all about. It's not about the palms. It's not about the robes. It's not about the donkey. It's not even just about the fact that he rode into the city is that he was riding to enthrone himself in the place where he belonged. As king of the universe, seated in his temple, drawing the nations to him. And you and I, as we sit here, with very few exceptions in this room, you and I are the nations. You and I got added in. We got grafted in. We didn't deserve it. We weren't chosen because of our good looks. You may be, but not me. We weren't chosen because we were so good. What he did in that moment is he said, I want my witness to go from here to the very ends of the earth. I want to make peace with all the nations. And I will let nothing, no people, No kingdom, no powers, no authorities, no traditions, nothing stand in the way. You were worth it. Let's stand together. I guess you could say we didn't learn anything uh, new today. I guess you could say it wasn't 
a highly practical message. You didn't learn how to save your marriage or how to balance your checkbook or how your teeth could be whiter, your hair shinier. I guess what we learned wasn't very practical. Or it's deeply practical. It's deeply practical in that we find out that Yahweh God, the creator of the universe, has built all of these things and put them in place from the very beginning to teach us about who he is and about his desire to relate to us, to have a relationship with us, and that he literally will not let anything stand in the way. That he wants nothing to separate us from him. And although there was a lot of foreshadowing, a lot of symbolism and all of that that happens in that, that listen, it, it is ultimately as a day of hoping, a day of triumph. It is the day that Yahweh returned to Israel to reclaim his throne, specifically to put you and I in a place where we could come to him with nothing standing between us. What does that do for you and I? It reminds us that he's already on his throne that I'm not waiting for him to come to his throne. He's already on his throne. It reminds me that we're not waiting for another temple to, or something else to be reestablished, that, that he has declared us by faith to be his temple, that dwelling place, and that it's his desire to dwell with us. That, that's how he identifies himself and is that vine, uh, uh, as that, the, the, the spirit of the tabernacle of dwelling in us, with us, for us, that he doesn't leave us or forsake us. And instead, we have the faith once delivered to the saints, which is best celebrated, not just in memorials, but by you and I faithfully living in communion with Christ every day. Amen. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.